Greetings to everyone and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Speakerts podcast. It's been a long time in the making considering that the Speakerts website was launched in 2013 and I finally got around to transitioning away from a Q&A format to a podcast. For those who don't know, Speakerts is an 11-year effort to try and get into the minds of people who worked on my favorite records as well as the hardware and software companies behind the equipment that they used. Basically, I'm trying to reverse engineer how those records were made by talking to the people who contributed to them, and the Speakers podcast is the latest incarnation of that effort. My first interview is with Michael Brower, a mixed engineer whose feats are the subject of much lore at this point. He's mixed records by Coldplay, John Mayer, The Fray, Aretha Franklin, Young the Giant, and more. So we talked about his background and analyzed some of his past records to uncover how he made them sound so good. This episode was recorded on September 20th, 2023. So please excuse if some of the questions towards the end sound a bit dated. We're talking about Michael's work and his future plans towards the end of 2023. I hope you enjoy this episode and thanks a lot for listening. Sweet. How are you doing, Thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. Sort of starting at the beginning... Media Sound obviously was a landmark recording destination in Manhattan that you worked at. I've heard that some of your early gigs involved working on Sesame Street recordings. Is that correct? Yeah, the transition from assistant to engineer uh, usually went through our chief engineer, Fred Christie. And one of the tests that we had to do and do well was to be able to record live, basically live to two track and four track and mono and sesame street there were about six musicians in the room and everything was done at once uh, the balancing everything was done in real time and he would sit there generally behind me or whoever you know was ready to move to the next step and watch not only my recording technique, but interpersonal communication between myself and the MD. There, there was a lot involved in that. And once he felt that you were you know, proficient and you could do well in this kind of a setup, which is pretty much high pressure because you have to have everything going on at once. You have to be able to balance. You have to be able to get it done quickly. You have to be, you know, there's just a lot involved. And so being able to do that well in his mind allowed you to then move on to work with clients. Okay. And being that there were a lot of engineers at Media Sound from Clear Mountain, Godfrey Diamond, and Michael Barbiero, which guys would you say you learned the most from as a mixer? I'm sure you took lessons from everybody, but which engineers gave you the most insight into how to mix and how to think about mixes? Well, in general, we would assist everyone, but every engineer had their favorite assistant. The two engineers that became my mentors, who were really the opposite from each other, was Michael DeLug and Harvey Goldberg. Those were the two that always requested me. And I've worked with Bob, I worked with Tony Bon Jovi, I worked with all of them, Godfrey. But in general, those were the two that took me under their wing and taught me the most. And Michael was directly responsible for really teaching me about compression. Harvey 
taught me just a ton of everything. I mean, they, they, he, their MO was completely different from each other. With Michael, you had to be right there, right next to him, ready to run out to the studio if there was any issues, any requests. It was a much more kind of a high-pressure uh, position. With Harvey, he didn't want to even see you. You, you stay out of his peripheral, be transparent, but the second he needs you, you need to be alert to what's going on in the room at all times. And so if he turns to you, you in general, neither of them would need to have to say anything to ask me. When I knew I was needed, I'd be up and out of the, out into the studio or getting a cable or whatever without having to them looking at me and asking me, you know, the, you, you learn to predict. And they, I became very, very close friends with both. They became my best friends. And when you said that you uh, learned particular things about compression, what were those things that he taught you? Well, I knew nothing about compression. I learned everything at Media Sound. There were no schools back then. And, and even then, there was nothing like learning from being in the real world. Um, I couldn't hear compression for the longest time. I just didn't understand what it meant. Not only did I not really hear compression, but I didn't know the difference between an LA 2A or an LA 3A or uh, 1176. I just didn't know. I just couldn't hear it, which was obviously quite worrisome. But eventually it came to light. I mean, something happened and then I could finally hear that. And Michael was using compression over the stereo bus. He was basically the king of M.O.R. at the time, middle of the road type music. And I mean, he, he had done Smoking in the Boys Room, which was a big, big hit. And Barry Manilow, he was doing all those kind of records. And his use of compression was really mind-blowing to me. Even though I didn't know what was going on, I could hear the difference and the presence and the pump and the, the dynamics and how it transferred to when we'd listen to it on the radio. So he was instrumental in really in teaching me the how compressors could make things bigger. You know, a lot of people would use compressors and it would make things smaller. <laughs> but he made it so that it'd be more dynamic. I caught on to that early on and it, it became really part of me. Let's stay on that for a bit because you have guys from that era, maybe even before, like Bruce Swedeen, who, from what I've heard him say, kind of turned his nose up at compression a bit. Um, I remember, uh, what's his name? Robert Robert Carranza had interned with him once or worked with him, and he, Bruce got a nice drum sound without compression, and Robert was like, "How do you? why don't you use compression? And Bruce was like, compression is for children. So when you were somebody who used it a lot, even in the late 70s, what were your realizations that it that made it an asset as opposed to being something that got in the way for other people? Yeah, I've I've heard that from him a lot. And there were two schools. His approach was, well, if you can't ride it, you know, that's for a child, you know, you just put the compressor on and you let it work itself. And um, we didn't come from that school at all. I, I mean, in general, I don't remember using much compression at all on the drums when I was recording. But also, it's not about a compressor. It's about what are you doing to enhance the sound? How are you enhancing the attitude? And there were many times where I would just use the compressor more like a, an EQ. 
and there would be no compression. It was just that going through maybe an, an LA-2A or LA-3A um, just helped the tone. And I preferred the tone of a compressor, which has no filtering over an EQ. But then it was also, if I wanted to get a particular kind of room sound using the 1176s, it, it wasn't about a cheating or, or, or skipping a step of actually working the sound. And, and on top of that, when I was, when I'd be using compressors, I mean, if you listen to even the first record that I did from Soup to Nuts, Luther's Never Too Much album, I'm riding. I'm riding those faders all the time. So even if I am using compressors, the way I'm using compressors is, you know, to be able to ride the the balances and the dynamics and the compressors are just helping me make those sounds more dynamic. And again... I never knew that he felt that way until I don't know years later when I when I read this you know particular interview of his and I was like well that's all well and fine you know you do it your way and you have your opinion I know what works for me and I know what I can do with compressors so um I, I think it just depends on how you apply that particular tool right and I would never say, well, my approach is the way to go. And, and if you do it differently, you know, you're not a professional or, you know, it's for children. I mean, I just found that statement absurd and I just ignored it. There is no one way better than another. If you're using your hand to do all the rides and it sounds like crap, then maybe you should do something else. <laughs> You know, it doesn't matter. I mean, with Bruce, he was able to get his sounds to sound great, you know. But I, I also have opinions of, you know, not everything that Bruce did was known to, you know, Dexter Simmons is a great, great mixer. And um, and he's become a really close friend. I'll just leave it at that. He had a lot of influence on on what Michael Jackson's records turned out to be. And it's. I'll just leave it as because Bruce is no longer around to defend himself. But I can tell you that if Dexter hadn't been involved from the beginning on some of the great records, you wouldn't have heard the mixes as they turned out to be. I'll just leave it at that. The motion and dynamicism aspect of compression is quite interesting to me. Um, I sometimes wonder how much of that is about having a compressor on the master bus that makes things pump by, say, triggering the kick versus having multiple compressors on groups. Um, how do you go about deciding where to insert that and how does it work with you? Well, you know, if you're familiar with the whole Browerize approach, that's, that's multi-bus compression. So I get a lot of my sound. Everything I do is about mixing into the compressor. So post-compression, not pre-compression. I mean, I use that too. But for the most part, I get my dynamics and my movement mixing into the compressors, which is why I divide all the music into basically three or four different sub-stereos so that the drums and the bass are going through one particular sub-stereo uh, processing and the guitars are separate from that and the vocals are separate from all of that. Um, and it just allows a lot of independence. So where do I put the compressors? Well, I might use some pre-compression across the kick and the snare if it needs it. And if not, 
It's just how I push it into the particular compressors. At the end of the chain, going across the fader, that might be a, more of a glue factor. And quite often, it's it's a lot of blend of wet-dry. So even across the, the fader, I might have what my, my favorite compressors. I had them as hardware, and then they were able to emulate them perfectly, the germaniums. And I'll put the germaniums here, but that's a very much of a... I think it's 60 dry, 40 wet combination. And it's just a really, really cool sound. And if I if it doesn't sound great, I just bypass it. And even across the stereo, the, the different sub stereos, I might go from one type of processor across B, which would be the drums and bass and percussion and everything else, to something else because maybe it doesn't rock enough or for R and B, it's a different kind of bottom end that I use. So there's always combinations. For years and years, when I was when it was hardware, I couldn't just switch over really fast from one kind of sub-stereo processing to another. But that's the great thing about being able to mix in the box is you can change anything at any time. You know? No, certainly. We will get to a, the subject of in the box, but last thing on compression, you've also said in the past that you, um, when you were mixing um, Tony Bennett or the Rolling Stones, you actually had to turn the compressors off. Uh, what was the reason for that? Well, for one thing, when one of the first songs that I had mixed for them, Mick came in and, and he could hear there's clarity and there was, I think, some some of the sounds were being controlled. He didn't want any of that. So he basically just said, turn all that off. I just want, I want it to be as open and unprocessed as possible. And so I minimalized all of that. You know, I basically might have kept the compressors still in the chain, but I would have turned them all off so that they, um, it's just more of a tone than anything else. And same with Tony. I mean, the only thing with Tony might have just been, he could hear the compressor on his vocal kicking in. So I limited the amount of threshold to the, just the bare minimum. Anyway, he has such mic, good mic control that it, you know, there was no need for any of that. All right. Well, before we go on to the mixing in the box thing, I actually want to go back a bit to this, the 70s aesthetic. So I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years about the sound of particular decades. And in the 70s, particularly mid to late, you seem to have this unique combination of warm, a, a little bit grainy, but with a very friendly mid-range which I've heard be attributed to everything from the console brands at the time, like MCI and Harrison, even some of the more obscure ones like Quad 8, Spectrasonics, or Langevin. I think Fairchild and Altic had some consoles too in the 70s. And then you had microphones that didn't really have the same high-end frequency pickup as today, so you have this sort of sloping, so softer frequency curve with an emphasized mid-range. But for some reason, a lot of that starts to phase out as the 80s progress, and you had the new wave of SSLs and Lexicon reverbs and Roland synths that become popular and that sort of 70s sound starts to disappear. Can you talk about the observations that you made at that time for how that sound, the sort of warmer sound, gets replaced by this brighter sound? At Media, we had Spectrasonics console. By the time that I really was recording, we had gotten Neve 8068s into the studio, and the Spectrasonics were replaced. There was still an API console up in the studio called The Lounge. Um, that was a eventually replaced, sadly. So the Neve had a very, very warm mid-range. The microphones we were using, I was using 414s, many of the instruments. 
on the drums, I mean, on the toms. Well, it, it, I use a bit of everything. I mean, I used, yeah, I, I can't say it was only 414s, but I use 414s on vocals a lot. Uh, Luther, Aretha, all of those. I set it up in a way that just kind of just got a head tone and I just got the whole, the whole face. But it was a warmer sound. But again, it's, it didn't matter. We used the console to, again, it was just a tool. And the sound that we were getting was dependent on what you wanted to hear and what was right for the artist. You could EQ it to the point where it was much brighter and clearer. The Neves in general were so musical. The, the mid-range was a bit darker. Um, the top end was beautifully smooth. My sound that I was getting was clear, somewhat shiny, you know, for the kind of records I was doing. I really wanted, I was hearing a much more dynamic, clear type of R&B, more of exciting than the, the traditional sound or the LA sound. It was, became kind of the New York sound that I was, that I was getting. Then by the 80s, I, I pretty much stopped recording probably by the mid to late 80s. I, I was really getting more and more into mixing, but I had moved out of media sound. So I think around 84, 85. And I remember distinctly when the SSLs came to New York City and I just about passed out the first time that I, I tried to mix on an SSL. I was like, you know, with a Neve, you put the tracks up that I had recorded and it, had, it was just a great fat, big sound. And then I put the same multi-track up on an SSL and there was no bottom end. There was, it was, seems like everything was just a little bit out of phase. And then to try to EQ something, you couldn't even use the EQs. You're the first generation of SSLs. If you even just touched the top end, it was like a high, high cue. You could hear the snare filtering as you, you know, as you were moving because it was, it was also paramedic EQing, right? Just floating through and it, you couldn't, it, the EQs were just useless. So, you know, you reverted to outboard, but the automation was cool, but I, I still had no interest in automation. There was no need for it. You know, I like to do everything manually, but eventually, of course, they improved on the EQs and they improved on everything. And it, and of course, the, the thing that that was different about the SSLs, once they got their EQs different and, and they, you know, every model started to get bigger and better was the clarity and the, and the crunch. You know, Neves all had even harmonics. So when you push that console into that sweet spot, you were getting the kind of distortion that, that gave you even harmonics. But with an SSL, you were getting odd harmonics. And that's where the crunch became popular because a crunch was, wasn't really even. It was more like a, an odd, odd harmonic saturation. And we need, you know, you needed to learn where the sweet spot was on an SSL, which was in a different place than it was on a Neve. So the clarity and the punch was different. And I found that I still loved recording on a Neve, but then I got to see the benefits of taking Neve tracks and mixing it on an SSL. There was just a clarity and a punch that I really, really liked. And of course, at that point, I'm getting into, you know, the idea of, of automation. Normally, if I would go, I, I would get a mix to the point where it's ready to go to tape. 
And then I would have all my cues in my head, you know, and I'd be doing on a manual. And so at the point where I'd be ready to go to tape is where I would hit automation and it would remember my passes and I would keep doing passes, you know, and moving the faders and getting everything just the way I liked it to the point where it would be like where I'd be recording to tape with all my moves, except now the automation is remembering all of this. And I like that. And I could really go further than I could when I was just doing live to two track. And of course, because of the automation, if the artist had comments, I didn't have to remember what I had done manually again. It was, it was remembered, you know, it came back. I think one of the great mysteries for me for of the last 60 years of recording is how, even though we have access to increasingly more advanced recording technology, the sound of particular decades seems to have largely disappeared as those periods come to a close. You do have a lot of people making throwback stuff, whether that's synthwave stuff that you hear in shows like Stranger Things, or you have funk ensembles like Wolfpack. But it's, to me, it's clearly an imitation or an homage to those eras. Uh, nobody would think that those records actually came out in the 70s or the 80s. You can kind of hear that they're made today. And I've tried talking to older people who were around in those times about why it's largely unheard of that you can recreate the exact sound of certain decades as if it, the record had actually come out in that year. And now it seems almost impossible. And I can never really get a straight answer. It's a very simple answer. It's all about the musician and the times, right? I mean, what, what was going on there were... Like at Media Sound, you had Babbitt, who had come from Detroit, you know, from from Motown. When Motown moved to L.A., all the musicians in Detroit were suddenly out of a job. Either you moved to L.A. or, you know, you moved somewhere else. And so the musicians that were coming to New York, whether you, you know, you were recording, again, it's it was down to all the musicians and it was something new. And the funk, all the different variations of soul and funk were being created right there and then when you listen to what the Ohio players were doing. That was in real time. I mean, this this is the feeling of of where it was that year or Earth, Wind and Fire. They're not copying anything. They're creating. Those were my favorite times. The, the music that I was recording and mixing at that time, it was just so real, so genuine. Many, many years later, when I would get a gig that was a retro, generally the retro part was, they play it, but it's, it's influenced by those times. They're trying to copy or they are copying certain guitar. I mean, you know, the typical guitar licks and typical drums and typical horn lines. It's a retro but still wanting to keep it modern. Like the mid-range, all the stuff in the middle would be retro, but the bottom end and the top end would always be whatever year I was mixing it in, right? And and then other bands wouldn't want any of that. They'd want it completely retro. But it's it's an in, it's being influenced by what was going on back in the 80s. It's not original. So there's always, you know, you go, oh, that's really cool. But I already been there. I already made those records. And it's cool, but it's not original. I do wonder about the Sonics, though. I've always understood that the musicians are different. But when I talk to people about the Sonics, it seems to me like a lot of those 
70s and 60s engineers were more beneficiaries of the technology um, because obviously the only way to make a 70s record is with tape and the outboard of, at the time, but when you ask that same engineer who worked on Blue Oyster Cult to recreate the sound today, he can't do it. Um, he can tell you what gear he used, but even if you go get those same units and comparable musicians and arrangements, the sound still isn't the same. So I feel like there's a component missing that isn't about a Fairchild or a Neumann, which I can't seem to nail down. Because we're constantly adapting to the times and technology. So the thinking changes. And, you know, you say you get the same musicians and you get the same studio. It isn't the same. It's many, many years later. Those consoles are much older. The whole approach, the thinking has changed. It's not like you're entering a time machine and you can go back. And so the to try to recreate something that was done back then is rarely successful. It's going to be different. There's Again, there could be exceptions. I think that if you get... I mean, there's cer certain engineers that, that would know how to do it because basically their room has never changed from the 70s and neither has their approach. So it's probably going to be as close as you can possibly get. But there's only, I think, a couple of engineers that I can think of that would be able to recreate that. But in general, you can't go back. And, you know, and the gear that was available, it, and also back then, I mean, a lot of the sound, how, how I got my my sounds was how I biased the multi-track and the kind of tape we were using and um, how I pushed those tracks and how I pushed it going through the particular microphones, the console, everything had, you know, in the chain had an effect. But if I wasn't hitting the tape a certain way or I, I had a particular type of bias that I liked both on the multi-track and well first a quarter inch and then the half inch all of that was part of the of the sound so there's no going back you're going to be influenced by today no certainly that is actually probably one of the more honest answers that I've received that actually you can't go back um Let's talk about the the in-the-box transition, because I think when a lot of people think of Michael Brower, they conjure up this imagery similar to a Clear Mountain or Chris Lord Algae, where it's like, big console, analog guy, came up in the 70s, you know, he must have some secret. Oh, it's Browerizing, I knew it. His secret is analog compression. But that obviously runs contrary to where you are now with being 100% uh, in-the-box. And perhaps some people would say, oh, he, he did that out of convenience, like a compromise. And if I want my mix to sound like John Mayer's Continuum or Coldplay, I'm not going to get that from him now. Obviously, you might not care what anybody thinks because what you're doing obviously works. But can you speak a bit to perhaps what you may have lost or gained from going in the box compared to your old process? For many of us, the changeover from strictly analog to a hybrid was triggered by the artist no longer attending the session. And they would call you with, you know, 15, 20 notes. And so you'd have to recall the console and all the gear, which, I mean, I had custom notes. I, I trained my guys really well and we could get an analog session, you know, back exactly the same. Most of the time, gear changes, gear acts funny, but let's say we, the, the gear comes back great. We do the recall and then, you know, I might do three songs in a day. It's a long, long day, long day for the assistants. 
And then they'd come back with more notes. You have to recall the console again. I mean, there was a lot of time spent post the record. And it's not like I'm sitting around waiting for recalls. I'm, I'm mixing another record. So th without the artist there and making comments in real time and then letting it go, there was no more letting it go. So it became extremely inconvenient and time consuming, which led to the idea, okay, what we're going to do now is maybe just run stems. So the kick, the snare, you know, all the individual instruments are now printed because at this point we have Pro Tools and we'll just do separate passes. Now you imagine if I've got 48 or 86 channels, that's a lot of passes. It's not that I'm just running the drums comp and a guitar comp. It's all individuals. And of course, during that process, uh, because it's an analog console, the consoles are getting old. And suddenly the right side doesn't pass signal and you've got strings that are suddenly all on the left side. It was just a pain in the ass because everything is getting old. But there was a point, you know, even on a good day, all right, so you get all that done. We wouldn't go back to the console anymore because they're going to be calling in with more notes. So now you've got the whole mix. The console is done. You don't have to go back to the console. And then that became a lot more convenient. So at this point, there's no sonic compromise. It's just that you don't have to go back to the console and do the recall. But then, then I started playing. Well, I, it was actually Tony and Nico. These guys were telling me, look, the future is going to be at least hybrid or even in the box. And I was like, well, I don't want to compromise. I mean, I can't imagine that digital plugins are going to sound as good as my hardware. So I resisted that for a while, but, but then I said, okay, let me just try it. And so I turned my live room, which I had, I had stopped recording stuff, you know, I turned that into live room into a hybrid room. And so I replicated the basic ABCD buses with analog. And everything else, you know, I basically replaced the console with a control surface. And I had no idea how to get a good sound, you know, and I was very, very concerned I might be compromising. And there was no way I was going to compromise. And it took me a long time find the sweet spot on a control service where control service, there's no like pushing, you know, there is no sweet spot on a control service. But, but, there is. I took months. I mean, I would get up and just yell and bitch and say, this is bullshit and not touch it again for another week or two. And then my assistant, um, Steve Vili at the time, or even before that, Ryan, they would just patiently say, come on, try it again, try it again. <laughs> you know. And eventually I was mixing a song and I I got to that great place so quickly. And I found that the sound was even deeper and wider once I figured it out and where I hadn't, I didn't need to think what I was doing. Cause again, when you're learning a new instrument, you're learning how to execute your ideas. But once you know it, you don't have to think, you just perform. And I realized that my approach that the multibus actually was much more dynamic and warm and depth and wider 
when it wasn't being bottlenecked into the console because everything all my all my stuff was happening before the console and it was all going into basically a summing mixer at the console with miles of cables so there was some bottlenecking going on when you skip the console then it became really big and at that point i decided well hell i don't need to have just an ssl sound i can have a neve across the drums i can have you know more of a british sound across the guitars i mean you know because i had a b c d you know each one each sub stereo i decided imagining that it went to a different kind of console and so suddenly everything all these new opportunities were open to me and as you know you had suggested that the possibility of compromising was foremost on my mind but now it's not a compromise and I wasn't going to mix anything. I wasn't going to do anything until it was as good or better. And the objective was to make it way better than what I could possibly do on an analog console. And that's what happened. My ABC, my whole multibus approach was actually sounded much better bypassing the console. And then that just, that just blew my mind because then I started getting more creative and I, I could see so many more opportunities and when it came to recalls, you just hit a button, the session would come up. There was, I, I would never, generally, I never touched my ABCD buses. Those were all set. Um, the only thing I needed to notate maybe is if I was using an analog reverb or something, you know, but I found that keeping everything in the box as far as the delay compensation and, and stuff, especially with reverbs, just sounded better because again, UAD, I mean, everybody is, is coming up waves is coming up with you know great great new reverbs or reverbs that sound just like the ones that i already had so that became a better approach and there were times where i could do things in the hybrid that i simply could not do on the analog for example maybe you know inserting on a chorus a different kind of processing that made things wider or bigger i couldn't do that on an analog console unless i i did a pass without it and then a pass with it and then cut it into the two track you know and then of course if there's comments what am i going to do i got to do all that again no it just you know so suddenly i'm realizing wow i can get a better mix and a bigger sound going hybrid so i still had you know then when i moved away from electric lady my main room became the hybrid and i had a big ass s6 it looked just like a console and i still had all my faders because i'm still riding my faders it's not like i stopped that 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 still existed that's still me i'm still moving faders so that the emotion is still being felt I did have to compensate maybe 200, 300 milliseconds. So I started moving ahead to make my moves in real time. But I still had everything. I knew where where the faders needed to be on the control surface for it to feel really good so that I was still pushing into the compressors beautifully. So there was a lot of play. And recalls became much easier because I didn't have to print stems. Or actually we would, turns out that I would be able just, it was a script that one of the guys wrote where after the song was done, it would just do all the passes. So I would have all the stems that I wouldn't need to, to rely on the analog gear. Cause you know, I still had my five or six double-sided racks behind me. 
And so, you know, we didn't have to worry about doing recalls and do all the recall notes because we would just run the, the, the passes. And then when I was in my high, had my hybrid room in the live room would be completely all in the box, you know, where my assistant would be making uh, prepping sessions or we'd be doing recalls and recalls were all in the box because I had run all the stems in the hybrid room. And then at that point is when I started having my assistant emulate everything in the box. So he would spend his time trying to find the plugins that emulated my distressor and my Neve 33609. And as, as companies were coming up with these emulations of these analog hardware, we would AB it. And, and it was easy because I could do a mix in the hybrid room and then have that mix come up in the complete in the box. And then we would compare and see, okay, that sounds really flat. That, that particular plugin kind of feels right, but it doesn't sound quite right. And so we would do things to it, you know, and they would keep tweaking. My assistant would then say, okay, listen to this. And I would listen to it in uh, AB against the hybrid, which was sounding great. And we'd keep tweaking and I'd learn more and more about, you know, what's going on in the box template. And I wasn't happy with that for the longest time. I was like, it's my switching over from analog to hybrid, hybrid to in the box. I was in no rush. I use more in the box now. If I was going to teach seminars, it was a lot easier to show the template without having to get the host to provide all this analog gear and stuff. It was just, you know, it was a lot quicker and much more convenient. And then eventually, thanks to COVID in a sense, I had to be mixing in the box because I moved out of the city. I basically moved the studio to my house. And that's when I really started getting into tweaking, which was now ITB. And I tweaked it and tweaked it. And every week I would change my template. You know, I would tell Fernando, okay, this is the new template now. And then I would go back and I would A, B that against something I had done in the hybrid to the point where I was like, wow, this actually sounds better than the hybrid, you know? And so at every step, it was always about learning the new technology to make things even better. So to answer your question, well, you know, could Continuum sound just as good? It's about the pilot, it's not about the tool. That's the way I hear that record. I'm gonna be able to do the same thing because it's, it's down to how do I hear something? Of course. Um, you're a co-founder of Mix with the Masters. Uh, has you have you had to adjust your approach for how you do these seminars? Given that you know most of the video content sees you in front of a huge SSL showing all these things, and maybe people come with a misguided sense of oh, I'm going to see him work magic on console, and then they show up and it's all in the box. Have you had to do you adjust things for the purpose of the seminars? I've transitioned from all analog to hybrid over the years with the videos that I've been doing to the point where with Pure Mix, I showed my hold in the box, right? And I did like an eight, nine part episode of explaining not only technically what's going on, but what's the philosophy behind all of this. So I've always been adapting. And yes, I was a co-founder. I, I was part of that for many, many years. And then I decided to move away from them. I was exclusive and it just felt limiting so there was a point where 
we went our separate ways. And then that's when I started doing videos for Pure Mix. And it was really great because I had been, at this point, I'd been in the box for a couple of years. And like anything, you know, when I was doing these educational videos, a lot of it sometimes would be reverse engineering of how I mix a particular song. The gear wasn't important. It's the thinking behind my decision making. Like, why am I going this route? And how did I go about this? Toys didn't matter. But it is important to know that for somebody who wanted to be able to use my approach, that they didn't have to buy $100,000 worth of gear. And my objective was always, well, eventually, if I end up being in the box, then that means that everyone has access to this approach. Everyone can do it at home. So with Pure Mix, they came up to my house for a couple of days and I went through from beginning to end. I mean, it was almost like a steady stream of thoughts. I mean, there's, there's almost no editing. I was, I was just on fire during those, right? And Fernando, you know, was very instrumental in, in explaining some of the uh, more technical approach you know, and I didn't, wasn't interested in that. And so Fernando was a great help and he came up for the day. We discovered a few things that I had missed, maybe from a technical standpoint, maybe the calibration of those plugins, or there was a few things that there, there was a lot of questions coming in. I was like, wow, you know, those are good questions. I didn't really address them. And so we went to New York City and I did a follow-up episode where again, Fernando and I you know, really addressed some important questions that hadn't, hadn't been discussed or even, you know, maybe an oversight. And so if you follow those, um, you're on the right track. And again, that's all in the box. So I still have analog gear. I still have analog delays. I still have, um, you know, some great stuff, but I print it. It's not going across my stereo buses. I'll, you know, I've got maybe a great EA, EAR or my AWA on that I want to use on a vocal. If I like that sound, I print it. Boom, done. So I'm still using analog gear occasionally, but um, it's for individual sounds as opposed to putting it across a stereo bus. Got it. All right, let's do some track breakdowns. So starting with Change Glow of Love, I mean, the first thing that I noticed is, is the punchiness of the kick it might be the most upfront sound in the whole mix now that that is way before triggers or anything else most of the kick sounds you heard from media sound would sound like that and I remember generally the kicks that we would get were just god awful. That kick would have been taking their kick, putting it into a Poltec MEQ, taking out all 300. Back then on all the R&B records, there was no 300 in our, in our music. All that lower mid-range was gone. That's how we got the clarity, especially the kick. So the kick would have probably gone through that and we had a neve console at the time so i would have been taking the 8068 i think that was 330 hertz probably taking that out so we would take all the mid-range out and then pump up everything below and above it in general 
we never touched 1500 for years. 800 was something we'd also remove, 800 out of the, out of the toms and stuff. 1500 and 2200 in general weren't touched. I'm not sure what compressor I would have used. I, I probably would have been using the Neve 33609. Oh, I mean, the, the Neve, I don't remember what the number was, but it was the, the Neve compressor that was in a separate section. The Neves didn't have compressors on each channel. There was in the main desk. I think we had eight, eight, what, what was basically the console version of, of a 33609. And back then we had basically only three compressors. It would have been the LA3A, the LA2A, and 1176s. So it's possible I would have been using that, but for the majority, I don't know that I was doing compression. A lot of it really was that EQ. I mean, again, I had a 33609 and Poltex pushed at 8,100, which is still what I do for cross substereo A. Substereo A is exactly what I used when I was mixing all those years ago. That never changed, except now I have bus B, bus C, bus D. But A is the same exact setup. So all of that, that whole mix was pushing into those compressors. And it was usually, the compressor was probably hitting around plus four, plus five compression. But the kick, the kick would have been as I described it. You know, it would have, I probably would have been pushing 3,300, a lot of 60. And again, it would have been going into the MEQ and then it would have been going into the Poltec EQP. So I'm pushing 160 maybe, and then whatever else is going on in the Poltec, you know, for that particular kick. And then we have the piano as well, which is a very uh, big trademark of this track, very airy sort of sound. That was, I remember that because I fell in love with Elton John shimmering piano. So if you listen to Never Too Much, all the Luther's, if you listen to almost any record that I've done with a piano that's shimmering, it's always the same approach. Um, and that would have been going into either an LA-2A or an LA-3A out of there into Poltex, pushing a lot of 4,000 or 8,000. And then, of course, on the Neve console, I was pushing a lot of the mid-range and attenuating some of the lower mid-range. And what would happen with a high compression is as the compressor would release, it would bring the harmonics up and I would ride the piano. I was always riding the piano. So as the release was happening, I was pushing the faders up. I always had one hand on the fade on, on the piano, one, you know, fingers on the piano because everything was individual. So two fingers on the piano, and then my right hand would have been on the lead vocal. So my left hand was doing a lot of the, a lot of the cues and the changes and the rides. And then my right hand was always on the lead vocal and the backing vocal together. So the pointer finger was on the lead vocal and the middle finger would be on the backing vocals. And those were assigned to VCAs, right? Groups, so I could just ride the lead vocal and the backing vocal. So my left hand was like the left hand on the piano and the right hand was the ride of the, the, the vocals. 
Let's look at Aretha Franklin, Every Girl Wants My Guy. So I wonder, the, the drums have this almost pumping thing again, but it's, a, I guess, a machine, a drum machine. I don't think we used a. I could be wrong. That might not be a drum machine. No, no, that's Luther. I mean, I mean, that's Yogi. My bad. It sounded so fat and upfront. I must have mistook it for that. Yeah, well, that was what I like to do. That was. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, speaking of that, the snare, which really did throw me, I thought it was a drum machine. Very like low pitched, it seems, and and dead and fat. Can you speak to how that comes about, and is that more on the recording or the mix side? Definitely the record side so it was, that was my snare basically everything i was recording i always unless it, theirs sounded great i would take their snare off and put one of my snares i had two or three different snares i had the ludwig i think it's the ludwig 800 i had a slingerlin and for yogi those drums had to be modified so that the snares underneath were held on by this special what do you call it it, it, it was like this plastic strip because usually the snares were kept by these little gut strings but he hit the snare so hard that they would actually the strings would actually break and so i had him yogiized <laughs> so first of all it's the way he hit the snare right he never hit the rim he always hit the center and i had this little i used the bathroom hand uh, paper towels they were very thick and i tape it on once you know on one side that was standard a lot of us did that did that on the toms too and then yeah tuned it that that's my tuning just it was just fatter and then there was a lot of Poltec 8000 on there and of course whatever is going on with the Neve probably I can't remember what the EQ is 4200 4500 4700 I don't remember somewhere around there that a lot of pushed um probably took some 800 out or 500 out and then I just didn't use compression on the drums all of that was just natural EQing I mean, even to this day, I don't use compression on the on the kick or snare. And it's going into the compressor, you know, going into stereo B, but I wasn't doing that back then. And then the mic, the way I mic'd it, I think it was, I used to use two microphones. So I probably, I oh, I had this Sony 22P that I've given my son. My son uses it now. Um, 22P is a really, really fat sound. So I used that on the snare and then maybe something underneath put out a phase i don't remember what that would have been it could have been a 57 or it could have been could have been lavalier mic <clears throat> something okay you have the big piano that comes in at uh, 0 56 or 56 seconds is that the similar approach to the change piano in any case this one sounds much bigger I'm trying to think whether on this record whether it was Aretha playing it or it was probably Nat Adderley Jr. And same approach with the kind of compression. And then I'd be riding 
the faders all the time. So, dun, 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 you know, and then as it's fading, you can hear the harmonics coming up. But all that shimmering EQ and that sound, that's, I live for that. I just love that sound. Always the same approach with a high amount of compression and riding the fader. Do you remember what the piano mics were? It probably would have been two four fourteens, and they would have been almost like a, a wedge. So somewhere, maybe not the middle, but maybe to the left of the middle, up, and just one was looking from the middle down to the bottom, and then the other one was looking, you know, they would be touching practically. And then the right side would be looking at the middle to the end. Sometimes I would listen to the piano, I'd get underneath the piano, the soundboard, and wherever I heard something sound where it sounded really, really cool, I would just stick a 57 right up in there and put that out of phase so that it was in phase to the track and then bring that up, you know, and maybe, you know, EQ it or compress it in a way that just gave you some really cool low notes or something maybe more percussive. Okay. Last thing about this track, at one minute you have the background vocals that come in and they're very, very big. So I'm wondering how that came about, if it's a group of people standing around one mic, multiple people doing multiple takes, or how you achieve that bigness. Again, I was using 414s and the way Luther worked is there would be maybe seven people, including him, and we would do one pass Right. And it would be, I don't know, it could be Luther, Fonzie, sometimes Whitney. Oh, goodness. So it's such a long time ago. But all the credits are there, you know. Um, it was always the same group. And what he would do is he would do one pass, right? And then the second pass, he would have people change their parts. Did this all the time. So it wasn't doubling. Suddenly, you know, he might say, okay, Fonzie, you take Tawatha's part. Tawatha, you take King's part. And and so he would change the tone so that maybe the parts were all the same, but being sung by, by, you know, you switch up who was singing those parts. Or sometimes he'd say, okay, on this one, you do the second, you do the fourth. I mean, it, it was incredibly creative. And that's what got those huge, huge stereo backing vocals. He never just doubled it. And he was the only person that I knew did that. And that's why the backing vocals always were really, really big. It sounded more like there was, you know, 16 singers. Everybody else, they would just say, okay, sing it again. And when you did that, you almost got phasing sometimes because you know, studio session singers were so identical. They could sing exactly the same timbre and everything, and it would sound so close that it would phase. But with Luther, doubles were always sung differently or by different singers. He would switch up parts. And again, that was where 414s. Four, I love 414s because it, it gave you that great air. And I was usually putting that into uh, the Neve console, you know, the Neve compressor. Let's bounce ahead to uh, New Radicals. Mixing those records was a completely new approach for me. Greg Alexander, obviously, is New Radicals. His approach to mixing 
his approach to production, which I think it was the same with Lenoir, is where you would record all different ideas. They could be five different guitars, four different basses. You just get all those ideas down and then you produced it at the mix. So really the production was done at the mix. He had specific ideas. I mean, he had called me because, you know, of the records that we have just been discussing. Um, he wanted that sound. He wanted those delays. He wanted the verbs, which you have to remember, I had turned all that off for about five or six years because grunge had come out and nobody wanted to hear those pop records like that. It needed to be dry and basically basement sounding. So when Greg came along, he was like, I want to get back to those kind of records. I want a lot of reverb. I want so much delay on my vocal. It never stops, right? I was like, whoa, who's going to want to hear that? I mean, I was happy. I was really, really happy because I was always in my element doing that kind of stuff. But um, he basically resurrected that sound. So because the the production was being done at the mix, I used to, I would mix songs in, which I still do, in three or four hours because everything, all the ideas are down. The production has been done at the recording. But with him, the production was being created at the mix. So he had all these instruments playing. There's no way you could put all that stuff up there. You know, you could have five different records with the production that was on there, right? Which which direction did you want to go in? We would spend maybe three or four hours just on the intro where he would decide what, you know, what would be the best combination. I mean, nine or 10 hours later and then into the next day, we would finally have a mix. I mean, it was just completely new to me and but it was also exciting because such cool things were happening but it was a whole different approach i was not used to it but i bought into it because i knew you know i'm sure at some point i probably got grumpy because you know in four hours normally the mix would be done and i'm still on the intro I'm like jesus <laughs> sweet let's look at dreaming with a broken heart on continuum which is one of the more understated tracks but very much a good one so I guess the piano is the main thing that catches people's ears. When you're dreaming with a broken heart The waking up is the hardest part Okay, um, well, nothing has changed. I'm still doing the same thing. But also, remember, I'm not recording anymore. And the Continuum record and the Battle Studies record, basically anything I've done, that was all recorded by Chad, who's an absolutely great, great engineer. And he also does the live sound. And if you've ever gone to a John Mayer concert, it's unbelievable how good it sounds. <laughs> so the sounds that I'm starting with sound fantastic and they can be easily manipulated. I mean, there would be records where when I would be mixing them, they had been so heavily processed that there's very little room to be able to manipulate. But with Chad, anything I wanted to do was just making it, you know, bigger. But I started off with something that already sounded great. And it was played great. Again, it all starts with a musician. But Chad would, in, you know, just was is such a great engineer that um, it was heaven. And I did the same thing I've always done. I would probably, at that point, I had modified my LA-3A, which I still have 
those compressors. I've sold a lot of things, but not that one. And I had two cans put in there. I had a, the LA-3A can, which is comes with it. And then I put in LA-2A cans. So between a switch, I can have two different sounds. And if it's a slow ballady, I use the LA-2A cans. If it's fast playing, then I use the LA-3 can. So with that, I probably would have put in, I would have switched to the slower. And again, the compression is about four or five when it comes in. Um, it's hitting that hard. And then on out of the out of the LA-3A goes into a couple of Poltex. And same thing with, you know, what kind of EQ I'm hitting and along with what I'm doing on the console, just to bring out the harmonics and the warmth and the bigness. And then obviously it sounds like I was sending it to a reverb, probably since I was mixing at Electric Lady, I probably was sending it to, you know, the Electric Lady plate when I usually put a little delay on it. So it might've been, you know, going to 125 milliseconds before it went to the plate. So it was like a, a bit of a slap on the reverb. We will end things with the fray, Happiness, from the self-titled album, which is one of the more interesting tracks because it's the acoustic guitar that's really big sounding, but there's not much else happening. And somehow it carries its own throughout the whole song. Outside my window, I thought it crashed. Flowing 80 miles an hour, happiness. A little more like knocking on your door. You just let again, it's such a long time ago, I don't know for sure. But again, I would venture to say that the things that might might have been involved. One of the things that I still do to this day that's in my template is sending the acoustic to a left and right 1176. So I'm sure I could already hear some movement going on. So I probably would have been sending it to those. That big, big reverb might have been, I don't, honestly, I don't know. It sounds more like a lexicon than it is a live chamber or live plate. So I could have been using a lexicon reverb. I'm and generally I tended to use two or three different reverbs, a short one. So I could have been using my lexicon 200 reverb with a kind of a short ambience and then combination of two others just to really make it big and wide and deep or or maybe it had already been printed that way, but I highly doubt it. I always requested dry and then work from there. Well, Michael, this has been nice. We got through everything. What will you be doing for the rest of the year? Any plans that you'll be goals you'll be striving for music wise, or do you just take gigs as they come? Gigs as they come. I'm up for album of the year uh, for Luke Combs at the Country Music Awards. And so I'm excited to go to Nashville and be there with Chip Matthews, who is a producer and mixed a lot of the record along with myself and, and uh, a couple other people. Otherwise, you know, as things come on, come along, it, then I, I start having fun. But I'm also focusing a lot on my racing. So yeah, the racing season is maybe got another month to it. And then, you know, I'll take a little time off and then start focusing for next year, uh, next year's nationals. So there's the two things that I love, right? I love mixing and I love racing. So it's a balance of those two. 
Awesome. Well, thank you. This has been great. <laughs>